now arriving, the Let's Talk Train Show. All Join us and help us make the American Passenger Rail Heritage Foundation better than ever. Your membership will help us further enhance our exhibits and attractions in north-central Missouri, including the Let's Talk Train Show. Our goal is to set up a museum dedicated to passenger rail history, including Amtrak, located in La Plata, Missouri. Memberships and contributions from friends like you will help us achieve this goal. For more information about the American Passenger Rail Heritage Foundation, membership, and opportunities available, visit our website, www.aprhf.org. And welcome to the Let's Talk Train show for Saturday, June the 25th, 2016. I am your host, Bob Alkire. My guest today will be Scott Lotus, who is the executive director for the Center of Railroad Photography and Art, uh, along with uh, his, one of his assistants, Jordan Radke. Today we will, we will be continuing our series on preservation, uh, this time talking about photographic presentation, preservation. And hello, Scott, and welcome to the show. Well, hello, Bob, and I'm here in Madison, Wisconsin with Jordan Radke, our archives manager. I'm looking forward to speaking with you today. And I'm looking forward to it also. A little bit different from the last conversation we had when you were a guest. I suppose so. That's been a few years ago now, too. <laughs> yes, it has, but still, it was. I, I still remember that presentation that you put on at Winter Rail, and it was just absolutely fantastic. I... I, I don't think I'll ever forget that show. Oh, thank you. Yeah, Bob's talking about the show I did on the uh, last uh, mainline steam railroad in China, a, a trip I did in 2005, and then was uh, a guest on the show sometime after that to uh, share those memories and stories. And you know, I think some of that work really helped uh, propel me into to now running the Center for Railroad Photography and Art. Well, very good. So getting started uh, with talking about the center, the center itself, what exactly is the Center for Railroad Photography and Art? Sure. Well, uh, just for a little bit of history first, the center was founded in 1997 uh, by John Gruber. Uh, John's been a freelance photographer and writer for the you know, railroad history and publications for, uh, well, going back to the early 1960s uh, with some really groundbreaking work he did in Trains Magazine. Uh, he was the editor of Vintage Rails uh, for several years in the 1990s uh, and has just done a great deal of work 
in the Robert Heritage community, particularly on the image making and image presenting and preserving side of things. And the center, I think, fills a niche within the Robert Heritage community of being an organization that's really dedicated to the visual arts. Uh, and I think that's really fitting given the profound relationship between railroads and photography and other forms of visual art. Uh, the steam locomotive and photographic processes basically grew up alongside one another in the 19th century. You know, we had our first railroads with the Baltimore and Ohio in, uh, around the late 1820s. The daguerreotype was the first successful commercial photography uh, process, which was patented in 1839, uh, just about a decade later. And photography was used very early on to both document and promote railroad construction in the U.S. and around the world. And of course, artists of all kinds took to the railroads to cover it in paintings and other forms of, of artwork. And so there's just such a great relationship there. And something on the scale of railroading is just so well suited to visual representations. And I think that speaks well to some of the exhibitions we put on uh, as well. I mean, there are some fantastic museums across the country that really can capture the scale and scope of a railroad yard or a station or you know, a large roundhouse, but a lot of places simply don't have the real estate to do that. But through visual arts, I think we can do that, and that's a big part of the center's mission. Who founded the uh, the center? Uh, that was John Gruber, um, again, a very well-known railroad uh, photographer and, and writer, uh, still active on our board. And, you know, again, he really perceived this need within the community for an organization dedicated to the visual side of railroading and its culture. And so our mission is to preserve and present significant images of railroading. And we do that through five really core activities. Uh, those, would put the, those would be putting on traveling exhibitions that go to museums across the country. Uh, we've had about 70 of these in uh, more than 20 different venues uh, all over the U.S. Um, we've also had... Uh, our conferences, which started, um, let's see, we had our 14th this year. Um, and so this is an opportunity for photographers, artists, academics, historians, enthusiasts to all get together, see great images, and also talk about them. And we'll talk a little bit more about that, I think, later in the show. We also have an awards program to recognize some of the best recent contemporary photography. And then we have our publications, including our flagship uh, journal of Railroad Heritage, which we publish now quarterly. We've also done some books and look forward to doing more. And then we also have our collections, uh, which Jordan's a big part of, and those have been uh, growing pretty rapidly over the last few years. And I look forward to talking more about that later in the show as well. Okay. So what led you to become uh, involved with the center? And then well, along with that, what do you do? Sure. So, well, I first heard about the center when uh, I was living in Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, working uh, at an engineering magazine at the time, and really discovered that I enjoyed publishing and, and writing, had recently taken up photography as well. And so I heard about the center's conference, uh, which is held every year in Lake Forest, Illinois, just north of Chicago. And so I attended. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I entered the photography contest, and after a, a few years, I actually won that. I was a, a co-win uh, with uh, Mishko Kranjak from uh, Slovenia, uh, but uh, tied for first place with him, I believe, in 2006, actually with a picture made um, when I was in China. And so I think that really sort of helped put me on the center's radar. And so after I returned from my travels uh, overseas, John reached out to me and asked me to first help do some work on uh, some websites that the center was working on. 
and it just sort of grew from there. And I was very fortunate to be in a position to take the full-time job of executive director when the sitter was ready to expand and, and do that. Um, and so as the president and executive director of a small nonprofit, you end up wearing a whole bunch of different hats. Uh, so I do everything from editing the journal to helping prepare our traveling exhibitions uh, to some of the fundraising work to the logistics for planning the conference and our exhibitions, managing our small staff of, of paid and volunteer employees, and working very closely with our 12-member board of directors um, to drive forward all of our projects. Now, you have talked about the relationship between railroads and visual arts, and probably 90% of people think photography. Sure. The other thing you had put in your title, though, is you are the Center for Railroad Photography and Why Art? Well, you know, again, I think there's a really strong connection, not just with photography, uh, but with all forms of visual media. And we can get into a discussion over semantics. I mean, I think there's some... Um, photography that certainly is considered art, and there are probably some types of painting that might not be very artful. Uh, but in any case, it just allows us to be as broad as possible in our coverage uh, of visual media of all kinds. And, you know, if you look back to especially the 19th century, railroads featured very prominently in everything from uh, master oil paintings uh, to some of the very, um, you know, more mundane but popular things like record album covers. Uh, of course, like the popular Courier and Ives prints. So railroads have just showed up in so many different kinds of literature, so many different kinds of art forms, uh, that we really felt it was important to have an organization that could cover not only photography, but also a lot of the other uh, art forms where railroads uh, have appeared. Mm -hmm. I've, I've noticed over the years that I've been a member, you have expanded the staff. Uh, at, at the organization through the use of volunteers and through the addition of some, some paid staff. And I am curious as to what do you look for in people that, um, that you bring on to the organization, whether they be volunteers or whether they be paid staff members? Well, I mean, I think a couple of the most important criteria are a passion for doing good work and uh, a strong sense of, of independence and reliability. I mean, being at a small organization, you're only able to provide so much oversight and so much supervision. So it's really important to have people who have a, a strong sense of independence and can take a project and really run with it. And we're able to offer a lot of flexibility to people who do work with us um, because of that. And I think we've had really great success uh, it's finding really good people, um, you know, both on as paid staff, interns, uh, volunteers, you know, all organizations rely on our people, and I really feel like we have a great group at the center. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I presume a passion for the visual arts would uh, certainly be uh, a factor. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and people who can communicate clearly about the visual arts, I mean, it's, you know, it's one thing to be able to take a great photograph, uh, and it's something else to actually be able to say something about it and something about what you're trying to do and convey or to talk about someone else's photography or painting or whatever it is. Uh, so that's, that's been a real key factor. Um, you know, obviously an interest in railroading is important, but we've also had some great success working with people who came from, you know, non-rail fan or non-railroad enthusiast backgrounds. 
Uh, and that's been really key, I think, to help us expand our scope and our vision um, beyond the, just the railroad community, which is, of course, our core audience. But we also feel it's important to take these images and these stories out into the general public. We had tremendous success with that with our uh, exhibition at the Chicago History Museum, which closed at the beginning of this year after an incredibly successful run of 21 months there uh, called Railroaders, Jack Delano's Homefront Photography, which featured pictures made during World War II of railroad workers in the Chicago area. And what the center did, um, these photographs are all at the Library of Congress. They're in the public domain, so anyone can use them. But what the center did to really add some value to these pictures was to research the people in them, find their descendants, and then track those people down, conduct phone interviews, sometimes in-person interviews, to reconstruct the stories of the people that appeared in Jack Delano's photographs. And it really provided this wonderful slice of life with um, these extended biographies of about 50 different railroad workers in the Chicago area. Um, we had a, a consultant on that project, Jack Holzheater, uh, who came to us from the Wisconsin Historical Society here in Madison. Um, not a rail fan, um, you know, by, by um, his background, but someone who's developed a great interest in railroads and their importance within American history and culture, uh, also an excellent writer and researcher. And that really allowed us to expand our thinking of what a successful railroad photography exhibition could be. And then working with the staff at the Chicago History Museum, uh, obviously they're you know, public historians. Uh, railroading would just be one uh, topic of the many, many things they cover there. Uh, working with them, we were able to, I think, develop uh, engaging and interactive and very successful exhibition to bring these photographs and the stories of these railroad workers to about half a million people who saw that exhibition over the almost two years it was at the History Museum. Now, you've also had some other traveling exhibitions um, that are either currently on uh, on exhibit or have been in exhibit. So could you tell us a little bit about those also? Sure, yeah. We have about a dozen different shows that are currently available or on the road right now. Uh, those include solo shows featuring the works of uh, such well-known photographers as David Plowden, uh, O. Winston Link, uh, Jim Shaughnessy, Joel Jensen, and also Ted Rose, who was, uh, of course, a very well-known railroad a watercolor artist in addition to being a photographer when he was a younger man. Uh, that Rose show is up at the Valley Railroad Company in Essex, Connecticut for this summer and fall. Our Link exhibition is at the Cocado Museum uh, in Cocado, Minnesota uh, for the summer. Uh, then we also have uh, an exhibition featuring uh, one of our collections here, the Fred Springer exhibition, which features railroads all over the country. And that's at Galesburg, Illinois uh, for the summer, uh, including Galesburg Railroad Days coming up this, uh, this very weekend. And then we also have our Joel Jensen exhibition, which is at the Nevada State Railroad Museum uh, in Ely, Nevada. And then the exhibition of our award winners from uh, last year's Photography Awards Program, which is up at the California Railroad Museum uh, in uh, Sacramento. Any, any thoughts of bringing some exhibitions to the Pacific Northwest? Yes, in fact, uh, I've been in contact with a few people about doing just that. Nothing uh, lined up yet. Uh, and of course, if any of your listeners there or if you, Bob, have suggestions of potential venues, uh, you know, please let me know about those. That's uh, so a part of the I area. Can, I, can, I can give you a couple right off the bat. Uh, Fantastic. The first, yeah, the first place is King Street Station. Oh, they, are yeah, taking yeah. Their, they are taking their third floor space 
which is currently unused, and talking about converting it into an arts center with uh, being used for exhibitions and galleries or a combination of both. That would be um, right. Yeah, and across the street, uh, Sound Transit, the regional transit agency, owns Union Station, and they have also put on uh, numerous exhibitions in their beautifully restored Great Hall. Excellent. Well, bringing, bringing in a railroad exhibit to a railroad station, I, I don't know how you could tie it in better. That sounds perfect to me. Well, we'll certainly be reaching out to both of them. Yes. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about conversations. Sure. First of so all, what is it? Annual, uh, we just had our 14th this year. Uh, it's grown from a one-day event to a, a three-day event. Spans an entire weekend, and uh, all but one of these has been held on the campus of Lake Forest College, which is our co-sponsor. It's about 30 miles north of Chicago, right off of Lake Michigan. It's a beautiful suburban community close to the lake, nice liberal arts campus. Uh, we start with a, a dinner on Friday evening, and then we have a full day of presentations on railroad photography and art uh, on Saturday, and then we also have workshops and presentations on Sunday morning, and we wrap up um, in the early afternoon on Sunday to give folks time to, to travel home. We've sold out for the past three years. Uh, sellout attendance there is 180, and we get people coming uh, from all over the country and even internationally. I think last year we had people from 35 different states and four foreign countries. So we, we, we really do have a, a great and diverse audience attending. Okay. Before we get a little further into that, I'm going to need to take a break. So we will be back in a couple of minutes. Okay. This is the Association of American Railroads Audio Service with a report on the way the nation's freight railroads are building for the future. As the economy grows, so does the need to move raw materials, industrial products, and consumer goods. The vital link in that chain is provided by the nation's freight railroads. And they've taken a look ahead and determined they need to invest more than $160 billion over the next 20 years to carry their share of the load. That's in addition to the more than $200 billion it will cost to maintain the system. The good news is that railroads are already investing record sums, more than $6.6 .6 billion, or almost 20% of revenues in 1999. That's a higher percentage of revenues put into capital improvements than any other industry in America. Railroad officials think they'll be able to increase those investments, thanks to the Staggers Rail Act of 1980, which freed them to compete in the market against each other and against trucks and barges. They say that law has already resulted in improved productivity, lower prices to customers, and more investment. Building on that, railroads are confident they will be able to keep up with the economy's need for even more freight transportation in the future. For the Association of American Railroads, this is Tom White in Washington. Only Donner Rails brings you exclusive railroad action entertainment, giving viewers the best seat in the house as they ride with crews of expedited freight trains over the Sierra Nevada. Check out some of our hot new titles on DVD, like Cab Ride Over Donner Pass. That's good, 97 stop and stretch. See how train concepts are constructed in the famed Roseville Rail Yard. Then climb aboard an EMD SD-60 freight heading east over the mighty Sierra Nevada. 
When severe winter storms hit the Sierra Nevadas, dumping up to 35 feet of snow, look out. Here comes the flanger. Every time you go up and you're on that flanger and you can't see the end of the engine, it will raise the hair on the back of your neck. Catch a ride with the Flanders night crew in Winter Rails Over Donner. See many other titles by visiting our website at www.donnerrails.com. And we're back with the Let's Talk Train show for Saturday, June 25th, 2016. I am your host, Bob Alkire. My guest today is Scott Lotus, along with Jordan Radke, and both of them are talking about what the Center for Railroad Photography and Art does. And just as a reminder, this show has been pre-recorded, so we are not taking live calls today. So you're talking about we are talking about conversations weekend, and you basically gave uh, the idea behind it. Now you're also you said all of them have been up at held at Lake Forest College up in in um, <laughs> up in suburban Chicago. Right. Now you're also having another one coming up later this year, and I was wondering if you could tell us about that one. Yeah, of course. Uh, and actually, I, I'd also just like to say a, a quick word about the title of the conference, which is Conversations, uh, and that really reflects our our desire to to make this a, a weekend of of thoughtful conversations about railroad photography and art. Um, all of the presentations have a Q&A session after them, and some of the audience feedback that we've gotten over the years has really encouraged us to provide more social opportunities. Uh, so we now kick it off with a, a dinner on Friday evening. We've extended our breaks throughout the day on Saturday. We have a long lunch break, a reception afterwards. And then on Sunday, we also have some more break time. Uh, so it really gives people a lot of chances to talk with one another and reflect, and it's just a great chance to connect and, and share thoughts and ideas and inspiration. Uh, we have the staff uh, members from most of the major railroad magazines, including Trains and Railfan and Railroad, who are both sponsors uh, attending every year. So it's a great opportunity to, for photographers and writers to pitch stories and get feedback. And you know, we just really encourage that that notion of conversations to run all the way throughout the weekend. And building on the success we've had there, um, you know, we've thought about before potentially trying to expand the conference program. Uh, and so what we're going to try this year is a regionally-themed conference uh, on the northeastern U.S., which is going to be held at the University of Connecticut in Storrs, Connecticut. Um, there's such a rich history of railroads um, throughout New England uh, with all those great passenger lines, um, you know, and the merchandise freight traffic to the great cities of the east, New York and Boston. Storrs is located right between those. Um, you know, in, in an area that really has a, a rich railroad history. And so we think this will be a, a, a great place to expand our conference program, and we have a great partner there in the University of Connecticut's libraries, uh, specifically their archives and special collections, which has about 100,000 railroad photographs uh, that they own and maintain in their library, including corporate records from the New Haven, uh, as well as such well-known photographers as Jack Swanberg, who's going to be one of our presenters this year. Um, so tickets for that just went on sale uh, earlier this month. The date is uh, Saturday, October 29th, the last Saturday in October. It'll be a, a one-day but a full-day event. We're going to start in the morning, have presentations all day, a lunch break, uh, and then a reception afterwards. So we'll also have uh, gallery exhibitions up, uh, including our own traveling exhibition of Jim Shaughnessy's work, as well as an, as an exhibit of um, featuring the highlights from the uh, University of Connecticut's collections there. Um, 
So I'd certainly encourage listeners in the northeastern U.S. or if you want to uh, travel a little bit to come check it out. Hopefully we'll have some nice fall weather uh, up there in Connecticut for our first uh, Conversations Northeast. And along those same lines, have you thought maybe about bringing a Conversations to the western half of the United States? Uh, Absolutely. Uh, this is as a first step uh, in hopefully expanding to have um, regional conferences all over the country, um, and probably something on the West Coast would be our, our next step. Uh, I'm not sure if we'd go Southwest or Northwest yet, but they're both areas that I'd very much like to see us do something in. Okay. Then when it comes to conversations about photography, well, I, I guess the question is, why have it? What what does it uh, provide, say, the general public? Mm, well, to the general public, I think um, – well, actually, let me back up for a moment on that. Uh, in thinking about why having a conference like this, um, you know, if we look around at the – at the environment that we operate in right now. So much of it is virtual, so much of it is electronic, um, and that's been a great boon for the Robert Heritage community. I mean, we're able to connect with people who have similar interests from all over the country and even all over the world in ways that we couldn't have even imagined a generation ago. Um, and so I think it's really opened up a lot of doors for community uh, to form within the shared interest of railroading. But at the same time, um, so many of these conversations happen, you know, in, in the ether of, of the Internet. Uh, and so that chance to have actual face-to-face -face interactions, to get to hear directly from renowned photographers and artists about their work, um, to be able to have that, you know, just in-person um, interaction and chance to meet and socialize and share ideas, uh, I think has really resonated within our community, and we've seen that in the in the growth uh, that we've had at our conference in Lake Forest, and we hope we'll be able to continue that in, in other parts of the country as well. But I think, you know, we all really desire human interaction, especially with people who have similar interests and passions to ours, and I think Conversations provides just a wonderful opportunity for that. Hmm. Yes, I, it, from what I have read, I, it, it sounds like it, and one of these one of these years, I'm hoping to get a chance to attend and even possibly uh, bring the radio show along with me to have um, interviews with the presenters. Well, we hope we can make that happen and sooner rather than later. <laughs> yes, me too. Some of the presenters you have are extremely well known. Some of them not so well known. Some of them that probably people have never heard of. So what, when you put together your conversations format, what do you look for in a presenter? Oh, that's a great question, Bob. And I think really the first thing we look at is the balance that we're trying to strike over the whole conference. Uh, we have a, a five-person planning committee that meets several times throughout the year. Um, you know, we're already, we just wrapped up this year's conference in April, and next week we have our first conference call to start planning next year's conference. Uh, in April of 2017. We've already been working on the conference in, uh, in October for the past several months. So these are really year-round planning activities, um, and I really want to stress that a lot of thought goes into assembling the lineup each year. And we really do look, look to strike a balance between 
contemporary and historic photography, uh, and then also providing some different perspectives uh, from both the fine art photography world and from artists working uh, within the railroad community uh, in painting and other visual media, and occasionally other media um, that aren't visual. I mean, we've had uh, writers before, we've had a couple of musicians that have been really popular, so we're really trying to, to get as diverse of a lineup as possible. Um, and so we always look to have some of you know, the real master photographers um, within our community uh, to present you know, people like uh, Steve Patterson, Joe McMillan, Jim Shaughnessy, Parker Lamb, uh, to name just a few recent ones, uh, but people who have been working in the field for decades, have been published in trains and railfan and other magazines and books and have a lot of name recognition and have just produced these wonderful bodies of work that really document railroad history, um, the, the sweep of, of technological change and the railroad's impact on the country over the, the last several decades. So we always start with trying to, to find a couple of photographers in that vein, and then we try to expand it beyond that to find a photographer to someone who's out working now, someone at mid-career, and then we also always try to bring in some people that you might not have heard of before, um, and I think that's important to me to help expand all of our thinking. You know, each year we have one or two people that I haven't heard of before. I mean, that's why we have a planning committee, so we can get uh, different ideas and, and different names on the table uh, and hopefully provide as diverse of a lineup as possible. Uh, you know, we also look for people who have had some successful track record of public speaking. We don't get a chance to often to vet our presenters before they present, so you know, some experience there in other venues is always important just to make sure that that uh, people can carry themselves well on stage. And I think we've had great success with that, and I think as the conference has grown, uh, it's just really helped up everyone's standards. As, as each year, I just feel like our presenters really put in lots of time and effort to bring forth the best uh, performance they can of their material. And I think it really shows. I think that work pays off, and uh, I think our audiences really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. you, you mentioned that you've had a couple of musicians and I don't know if this fits into the area of the the topic of photography and art, but there's a large body of railroad music out there. And have you ever thought of, since you have musicians, have you ever thought of maybe doing um, a presentation on railroad music as part of the conversations process? Well, this is something we've been talking about for a while, and this is one of the, the great things about having art as part of our name because that certainly allows us to expand into areas like music. Uh, last year in 2015, we had Axel Zwingenberger come from Germany to present, and Axel uh, came to our attention first because he is a spectacular night photographer of trains in Germany. Uh, he's done some synchronized flash work sort of in the vein of O. Winston Link that is just spectacular. Uh, but it also happens that uh, Oxel's day, or rather night job, is as a boogie-woogie pianist, and he's one of the best boogie-woogie piano players in the world. He's recorded several albums. He's performed all over Europe and North America. Um, and he's also very um, eager and able to speak to the strong relationships between boogie-woogie music and the railroads. I mean, a lot of the rhythms that you hear in boogie-woogie piano playing came directly from the sounds of trains going down the track. Um, and so we'd been talking for a while about having Oxel come to present. We'd actually tried one year before. Uh, he wasn't able to get a visa that year. Um, this is a little bit more challenging for professional artists than just uh, someone who's coming to the U.S. as a tourist. Um, but we got all that straightened out. He was able to come in 2015. 
He uh, played uh, piano and talked about his music some on Friday night, and then he showed uh, photographs and played piano again for us on Saturday. And it was just a, a fantastic presentation, and I think it really um, just hits on so many of the areas that we're trying to cover in conversations and how these different art forms can all come together to tell railroading stories. Um, so I think that was just a, a spectacular success and something I hope we're able to do more of in the future. Uh, that's, that really sounds interesting. Yeah, um, no, I, okay. I think everyone had a really good time listening to him both on Saturday and, and Friday night before. Yeah, yeah, I, I wish I could have been there to hear it. Um, let's, if you can bring Jordan in on the phone, if he's there. Yes, hello, Bob. Hello, Jordan, and how are you today? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Oh, I'm hanging in there. I still got a little bit of a cold. It's keeping yeah, that's me, a... Um, slowing me down a little bit, but it's slowly but surely going away. Well, thanks for making the time for both of us again. Oh, you're you're very welcome. And it's kind of tying into this interest I have in historic preservation. Um, sure. Last month, I had a, a wonderful conversation with uh, T.J. Gaffney, um, who is uh up in Michigan, and we talked a lot about preservation um, uh, from the museum standpoint and from individual collections. And it's with, it, it sort of led me to the, this idea of, okay, let's continue the conversation because now we need to talk about photography and art in the same vein. And I've always wanted to have the center on, on the show to talk about that, and it, it just tied in really well. Well, it's perfect timing. Yes. Okay, so let's start off. The traditional first question we ask of our guests, and I didn't ask Scott because we've already done that, but I'm going to start this one off with you. How did you become interested in trains? Uh, I would say through this position. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I really uh, didn't have too much of an interest or passion for trains, um, and I kind of realized over the last few years that I've been working here um, I don't think it was non-existent. I think for me it was just kind of unrecognized at the time. Um, now working with train photography and art for the last two and a half years, it's it's one of those things where I I notice it in my everyday life, whether it's in uh, TV and film or just kind of noticing the tracks throughout Madison here in my hometown in Minnesota. So along the same along the same lines, how did you become interested in photography? That has been a, a longer interest. Um, I still, by in no means, even an amateur photographer, but uh, working um, through the university and um, graduating with a master's in archives, uh, I, I kind of thought I should focus in um, media, and photography was one of those medias that I really enjoyed, especially older uh, photographs. It, it can capture so much um, of the period and, and the culture of the time. And so uh, that's why I, I've kind of dedicated to work towards preserving photographs, and the center is a great avenue for that. Then what led you to the center? <laughs> um, I needed an internship. <laughs> I, <laughs> I was, you had one available. Yeah, yeah. I was finishing up my last <laughs> semester of grad school, um, and I needed um, a position, and Scott 
I believe recently posted one at the time. I I was looking for something different. Typically, a lot of grad students kind of gravitate towards the Wisconsin Historical Society here in Madison, and that's a great place to work. They have plenty of positions there. But I, I was looking for something different, and um, the Center for Railroad Photography and Art seemed different enough for me. Uh, and so I got the position here as an intern, working with um, their archives of photographs, and I enjoyed it so much that uh, when they offered me the full-time position as archives manager, I had really no second thoughts about taking it. Wonderful. Uh, okay, so then as the archives manager, what exactly is it that you do? <laughs> um, well, I like Big to think job, that right? I, yeah, yeah, it's pretty broad, but uh, <laughs> well, I try to oversee the entire, um, uh, all of our collections here, and um, I, I've kind of been working on more of our bigger collections. I started out working for our collection of 50,000 color slides of Fred M. Springer. Um, I've been moving on to um, another collection of similar size with John F. Bjorklund. And in the meantime, I've been working a lot with um, uh, J. Parker Lamb's uh, medium format negatives. Uh, so I, I try to dabble in everything. And um, at the same time, since my hire as a full-time archivist, we've also been able to um, hire several summer interns uh, from the same graduate program as, as mine here in Madison. And so I help oversee them. We'll give them some of the smaller collections that they can finish um, during the summer and, and give them the opportunity to really kind of go through the entire process. Okay. Now, you, you currently have two uh, interns, I believe, in Maddie and Aviva. Is that correct? It's actually changed in the last month or so here. Um, Maddie, unfortunately, left us after um, an entire year of working with us. Uh, we currently have Aviva on staff. She doesn't come in as much as, as possible, but we uh, hired two new summer interns um, that just started working for us this, uh, at the beginning of this month. So they're here for all the, the entire summer and possibly even further than that. And are these are the, the they're also graduate students? I take. They are, yeah. Um, given my connections with the with the university, um, we're able to put the job posting straight to the archives program over there at the university, and we get a good crop of several uh, uh, interns from over there, and we've lo loved the work that they've done for us so far, and I think we'll continue working with the university trying to get. Um, as many archival grad students as possible. That's That's got to be something different for some of those people uh, being involved with archiving trains, uh, photographs of railroads and trains. Yeah. And like I said, the Wisconsin Historical Society is is a very common avenue for grad students to take given its proximity to the university and, and the shared history that they have. So I think um, if, there, if there are grad students that are kind of looking for something different, um, we offer that here at the center. It, it's not a typical, I think, interest for a lot of people, but um, once you kind of actually work with the collections we have here and the staff we have, um, it, it's, it's easily recognizable as a passion for people, and it, it grows on you. 
How much of that do you think is going to benefit the uh, the people as they go to work in their future careers, probably in the media of some sort, or in historic preservation, for that matter? Yeah, and uh, we try to give them some of the work on our collections that they would do at a lot of other uh, positions. I mean, we'll have them go um, through the actual cleanup and uh, rehousing of materials all the way to organizing them and adding metadata to that stuff. And even when we have the opportunities, Scott can offer um, chances for them to add to the uh, Railroad Heritage publication that we have. So we try to give them as many opportunities as possible, but I think it's, it's, a, it's an intern position that really allows a lot of hands-on, hands-on experience that they just don't get in the classes. Very interesting. Okay, we have to take a break. Go ahead. Um, you know, I think one of the the things that's that's really struck me in talking with you know all of the interns that have come through is that, uh, as Jordan says, you know they have a lot of theoretical training in archival work in the classroom, and we're able to offer something that's more practical and hands-on, which I think they really appreciate. And I also think that. There are a lot of, of transferable skills between what we do and, and other museums and archives. I mean, we're very focused, obviously, on railroad subject matter, uh, but the nature of the work, I think, if you're working you know, in a small, tightly focused museum or archive, there's a lot of similarities. There's a lot of, of transferable skills that people can take with them, and because of that, the interns who come to work with us often already have a lot of very applicable skills, even you know, if they may not have specific knowledge about railroads, they certainly know about photographs and archiving and history, and uh, that always, I think, leads to really good experiences for both us and for them. Oh, very, very good. And it, so- it sounds really great, and it sounds interesting. I, I mean, I wish I'd had a chance to do that when I got out of, when I got out of school. Uh, probably would have done more for pursuing history than accounting. <laughs> <Quite> <laughs> <so>. <laughs> Anyhow, with that, we need to take a break. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. Join us and help us make the American Passenger Rail Heritage Foundation better than ever. Your membership will help us further enhance our exhibits and attractions in north-central Missouri, including the Let's Talk Train Show. Our goal is to set up a museum dedicated to passenger rail history, including Amtrak, located in La Plata, Missouri. Memberships and contributions from friends like you will help us achieve this goal. For more information about the American Passenger Rail Heritage Foundation, membership, and opportunities available, visit our website, www.aprhf.org. Are you tired of having to click and click and click to watch train videos on the web? Well, why don't you do what I did and give your fingers a break? TheRailChannel.com has great shows every week. They show contemporary and vintage programs that focus on real railroading and model railroads. If it runs on rails, I'm sure you'll find it on the Rail Channel. The programs are updated every Monday, and best of all, you can sit and watch it in full screen with only one click. Head on over to therailchannel.com right now. That's all one word, therailchannel.com. Watch it. Operation Lifesaver presents a 60-second lesson in common sense. 
Deodorant is not a shower. It's wrong to feed a baby salsa. Don't wear a kilt on a windy day. Never ask a bride why she's wearing white. Don't keep mouthwash next to the antifreeze. Heave on hoe, not on heave. Don't sniff a green sausage. Close your mouth when you hang glide. Don't tap dance on the roof in an ice storm. Don't go swimming in leather pants. If you're in a parade, wave. Never eat a burrito before a road trip. Don't wear lace to a rodeo. One's a malt ball, one's a moth ball. Always walk with pie. Never practice nunchucks in a crowded room. Never leave a plant near the litter box. Don't buy sushi on sale. Flowers with thorns make lousy corsages. Don't put a knock-knock joke in a eulogy. Cherry chapstick doesn't taste as good as it smells. Always take your shirt off before you iron it. Do I look fat? The answer is no. And most importantly, never, ever, ever forget your common sense around railroad tracks. A train can come from any direction, on any track, at any time. A message from Operation Lifesaver. Visit commonsenseuseit.com. Okay, I had the phone on mute. Sorry about that, and didn't take it well, back. we're off. back. Okay, so we're back. <laughs> All right, we're talking with uh, Scott Lotus and Jordan Radke from the Center for Railroad Photography and Art, and we've been talking about a little bit about some of what the center does uh, in their uh, in in some of the public preservation public aspects they do. Now we're going to talk about some of the aspects of preservation. This is some of the areas that is probably not as well seen, but just as important in preservation of, of photography, slides, movies to a degree, and a little later on we'll be also talking about preservation in the digital age. But I'd like to start with talking about <clears throat> preservation in, the, in general. And my first question, how important is it for a photographer to make their wishes known? about their collections after he or she has passed on? Well, I think that's vitally important, Bob. I mean, if you, uh, if you're, anytime you're looking at estate planning, um, you know, the, the very first thing you're going to look at is what the photographer's wishes are. Um, and if those haven't been spelled out, then, you know, the family or the heirs often don't even have any idea of what to do with the photographer's material. So there's no one better than the photographer themselves to you know, spell out what they'd like to happen with their work after they're gone. And also at the same time, how how important? <clears throat> excuse me. How important is it to preserve photos and slides? Just just generally, not necessarily as a 
potential donation to the Center for Railroad Photography and Art, but just preservation in general so that that record is there. Well, I mean, I think you said it right there. I mean, it said that we have a record of what has been here before. Um, and, you know, as I said earlier, photography, you know, really grew up alongside of railroading, and it's often been just so well poised to capture so many of these seminal moments. Um, you know, I think it comes down to the same question of why study history, you know, so we can learn about the past and, and hopefully make better decisions in the future um, for that. And actually, I'd like to give Jordan a chance to weigh in on this. I know this is something they talk a lot about in their archival programs. Yeah, I, I agree with exactly what Scott said. I mean, if we don't preserve it, who will? Um, and sometimes the person that's, be that's best to preserve it is, is the one that uh, created it in the first place. Okay. Now, can you give us some tips for how a person can go about preserving their photos and their slides? And I don't know if you're, how much you've gotten into this, but probably movies as well. Yeah. Um, I don't know how detailed you want me to go, but, I mean, I know that um, the center here, when they hired me, um, one of the main things they wanted to do was kind of acknowledge how important preservation um, is in the first place. So uh, for the last year now, uh, we've been printing an out-of-the-archives column that uh, myself, Scott, and even a few of our interns have contributed to to kind of bring light to, um, to the subjects of archiving and kind of what um, you can do with your own collections. Uh, so one of our first uh, issues of that was kind of just preserving and organizing your collection right away and then also adding metadata, uh, which is the kind of the invisible information that's um, attached to every photograph, which kind of uh, explains the description and nature of everything that goes on in that photo. So let's say you're a person <clears throat> like me who has this pile of photographs. And I'm using myself as an example because I can't think of anybody else right off the top of my head. And I don't do this. <laughs> but let's say you're a person like me and you've got this pile of photographs that you've taken over the years. And I'm going, okay, now what do I do with this stuff? I have no idea what this is. So how, 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 do, how would a person like that go about sorting through and organizing and labeling and doing some of the just very basic things that they need to do so that there's a record there for whoever ends up getting the photographs. Well, I'll start with this and, and let Jordan jump back in, but I, I think the, you know, the very most important thing for the photographer to do is to record that, that very basic metadata or caption information, whatever you want to call it, of the location and the date of the photograph. I mean, those, those, Two pieces of information are just absolutely crucial to making a photograph useful and, and usable and searchable, and there's no one better than the photographer to record that information. So whether you're writing it on a slide mount or if you have negatives, you're putting them on an envelope or on the page that goes you know, next to the negatives, just somehow getting that information down, getting it connected to the photographs, um, those I think are the two absolutely most important things. Jordan can talk a lot more about next steps 
but those are the two things that, that we really rely on at the center for the photographer to do. Everything else from there we can do if we have to. Obviously, it's easier if the photographer's done more work in terms of organization and rehousing. Um, but just getting that upfront information is just so key. It gives us a starting point. Um, and I think, you know, beyond that, I would just say to, to break the work down into manageable chunks. You know, if you're, if you're looking at 50,000 slides that you've taken over the course of your life and there's not any information on them, that can be pretty daunting. Uh, so just, you know, pick a box or, or a group or something so that you can get started, do everything with that, and then move on to the next one. Uh, you know, you don't want to get overwhelmed, but at the same time you want to be able to make good progress because, again, there's, there's no one better than the photographer to at least record that initial information. Uh, and I also would add that it's not always necessary to, to be too detailed. I mean, obviously we want to get as many details as possible, but if the trade-off is that that's overwhelming to the point that, that nothing gets done, you know, we certainly want to encourage, first of all, that basic location and date. Um, anything more about you know, the train, the locomotive, the railroad, that's all very helpful, but often you can you know, read that off the photograph itself. So that's something that can easily be done you know, later by an intern, but often you can't see where the photograph was taken or know what day it was taken on. So getting those two pieces of information are just, I think, far and away the, the most important first step. And uh, I'm sure Jordan has some things to add beyond that. Yeah, that was great stuff. And um, kind of coming in as an, as an archivist point of view, um, I'm a big advocate of, of planning. So really before you, you kind of move on to, to handling any of your materials, I think it, it's really worth it to take the time and the energy to plan out what you want to do. Um, so establishing and kind of executing a long-term plan really can be crucial. Uh, going into some more detailed stuff though, um, and using your example, um, of yourself and I know I've gotten a lot of emails from similar situations where people have a shoebox or a small box of just photos that they've collected over their time. I, I think one of the, the main things is um, kind of keeping or kind of housing your stuff and organizing it. Those are two big things that you can easily do and, and, and it's pretty easy to plan those out as well. So I think if you kind of keep all those materials in a cool dry location, um, which we kind of consider as our climate-controlled environment, um, you can really control the temperature and relative humidity. Um, if people are out there and they maybe even are willing to buy some um, devices that can show that stuff for them, ideally you kind of want to keep your temperature around 65 degrees um, with a plus-minus of 2 or 3 degrees. And also your relative humidity, you kind of can think of that as almost dividing that in half. Ideally, you want 35% with a plus or minus of 5%. And like I said, there's um, some devices out there that are fairly cheap um, that can go upwards from $50 to $200. Um, but one of the main things that you want to come away with is keeping things consistent. Um, it's okay if, you know, maybe you're over by a degree or two, but as long as you keep things consistent, that's really the best things for uh, photographic materials. Changing it from environment to environment or temperature to temperature can really take a major wear and tear on the photographic material at a quicker pace as well. So I would also say adding on to that um, is making sure that you can house your photographic materials 
Um, in archival safe uh, supplies, uh, at the center here we use plastic sleeves to put most of our negatives in. Uh, the, the types that you really want to look for are uh, polyethylene, which is PE, or polypropylene, which is PP. And those are plastics that uh, do not transfer the film of the negative, and they also make it really easy to kind of see through uh, the plastic and onto your negative really quite easily. So you want to avoid anything that says PVC, which is polyvinyl chloride, and that's a thicker plastic that um, is not really good for long-term housing and actually can transfer ink over. Um, so that's pretty detailed stuff there for, for your housing, but if you can kind of get your materials into a good housing situation right away, you're off to a really good start. And from there, you can kind of start organizing it how you kind of want it. Yeah, a lot of people ask us, how should I organize my collection? And I think the, the simple answer there is do what works for you. Uh, I don't think we need to have uh, a consistent standard for every single rubber photography collection out there because they're all different. Um, you know, just within our collections here, John Bjorklund um, has a wonderfully organized collection. He's gotten the location and date written on every single one of his 55,000 slide mounts. And his photography is organized uh, alphabetically by the name of the railroad. And then within each grouping of railroads, it's organized chronologically. We have some collections that are organized straight up chronologically. Um, we have others that are organized uh, by different subject matters. Uh, so I think really the most important thing is that you pick an organizational scheme that makes sense to you. And if it makes sense to you and you're able to explain it to somebody else, it's going to work for us. And we typically try to keep our materials in the same organization scheme that we receive them from the photographer unless there's you know, just a real reason to, to change that because, you know, things were out of order or something like that or no order was even there, which is sort of a worst-case scenario for us, but we can deal with that. Um, but if the photographer has already established an organizational scheme that makes sense, um, stick with it. And that's another thing I'd really like to emphasize is if you do have an organizational scheme, I would strongly encourage you to keep using it. Uh, we've seen a couple examples in the past of a photographer uh, late in life, changing their organizational scheme and then maybe not finishing the, um, the changeover during their lifetime or in one case, a photographer developing dementia um, in the process of making this organizational change, which led to a lot of problems uh, and required us to do a lot of extra work in terms of, of um, just reestablishing some sort of order to the collection. So if you have a scheme that works, stick with it as long as you can you know, explain it and, and find things for yourself and show someone else how to use it, I think it's going to work for us. All right, Jordan. So I'm looking at one of the archival preservers that we have that we keep our negatives in. Okay. <clears throat> how do I tell what kind of material this is? Because I'm looking at the cover, and it says, 25 archival print preservers. Each print preserver holds six four-by-six-inch prints. And all I've got is it says, um, to, all it says on here to indicate what type of material it is, it says archival quality, no PVC, safe for long-term storage. So how do I know that's either a PP or a PC? If it says when you go out, you know when you go out, you're looking. How can you tell that you're not getting any PVC? I mean, we buy ours from a camera store, so it's 
we're hoping that it's pretty um, pretty reliable. Sure, and and that's one of those things. Um, before you kind of buy a bulk quantity of any of these materials, you do want to do a little research. Typically, if you do buy something from um, an archival supply group such as Printfile or Gaylord Archival Supplies, or even a lot of camera shops, you'll get you'll get the stuff that um, you need. Um, one of the key things you want to you want to look for is exactly what you said. If it says archival quality, for the most part, that should be good. And and if it says no PVC, uh, that's a that's a bonus um, indicator that it, it's something you want to look for. Basically, you want something that's one of those like thinner types of plastic that you can still see through. Um, and and as long as it says that it's archival quality, you should be good to go. Okay. And in terms of what that would would feel like, I mean, the, these newer materials that are more archivally safe are going to be the thinner kind of, I guess, more floppy sorts of plastic, uh, whereas the ones with PVC are a thicker, more rigid kind of plastic. You can tell the difference pretty clearly if you if you have one of each. Okay, I have a cat walking across my um, <laughs> my my laptop here, so I have to move him. Okay. <laughs> He he likes to do that. He's a cat who loves his attention. <laughs> well, the laptop's a nice, warm place, too. Uh, yes, it, it is. We don't consider cat hairs to be archival quality uh, here at the center, at least, although some photographers may um, take exception with that. <laughs> well, I would I would say so, because whenever we are working with our photographs or our negatives, we... Um, generally try to make sure that the, the cat is someplace else so that we don't get cat hairs into the uh, into the photographic storages or into the uh, storage, uh, negative storage. Uh, well, at the very least, my allergies, thank you. I'm, sadly, I'm allergic, <laughs> although I, I love them dearly. That's one of the things we have to live with. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, okay, <clears throat> so talking a little bit more about... Um, Collections that don't have any information, and I've, we've all run into this at, at, at memorabilia shows and swap shows. And I'm talking about what we uh, talking about the example I was using. It was, and it was actually like I said, this is not me. It was a collection that we inherited oh, sure. uh, from a friend of ours who was notorious for not documenting his information. Uh, for a lot of it, we were able to, um, fortunately, we were able to talk to him before he passed on and at least get some locations and some dates and then do further research from that. Um, so, uh, again, looking through the Internet, I, I would suggest, same, I would guess would be a good way to document items that have not been previously documented. Oh, absolutely, and you know we're we're very fortunate at the center in that we have you know such a wonderful base of of very knowledgeable members and friends and supporters throughout the country and even the world that you know often we're able to find someone who has very expert knowledge of whatever area we're looking at for a photograph that doesn't have any information with it. Um, I guess I would take this opportunity to say though again just to really reiterate the importance of doing some of that initial documentation work when you know we're here essentially in a museum setting with lots of different collections um, you know you really have to make some sometimes difficult decisions about where the priorities go and 
all other things being equal, you know, it's a collection that has that initial information in it is going to be probably the one that gets our attention first before a similar collection that doesn't have any documentation with it. Uh, you know, again, that's just a matter of, of limited resources and having to, to make some decisions about priorities. Uh, but at the same time, if you have uh, what are clearly some really impressive photographs um, that don't have any information with them, you know, then we are, we do, are, we're fortunate to live in a time when we're often able to, to track that information down, whether, you know, through leveraging our membership or the myriad resources available on the Internet. And speaking of the Internet, I've been remiss not to mention the center's website at railphoto-art.org. And I'll say and spell that again, that is uh, R-A-I-L-P-H-O-T-O hyphen A-R-T dot O-R-G. All right. Well, thank you very much. At this point, it's coming up to the top of this hour, so we'll need to take a break. Come back in about three minutes. We'll be here. Now arriving, the Let's Talk train show. All And it is hour two of the Let's Talk train show for Saturday, June 25th, 2016. This program has been pre-recorded. I am your host, Bob Alkire. My guest today is Scott Lotus, the executive director of the Center for Railroad Photography and Art. We are talking about preserving railroad photographs, slides, movies, art, various media forms of rail-oriented uh, pictures. <clears throat> well, thanks, we will be talking a little bit about the processes that the center takes, as well as, of, uh, as, well as pro, uh, <laughs> I'm having a senior moment here, sorry, as well as identifying and preserving photos in the digital age. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. This is the Association of American Railroads Audio Service, and today we're reporting on the early days of America's railroads. When the first railroads began operating in the United States in 1830, the entire nation had a population of a little less than 13 million people. Most of them lived in communities or on farms huddled near the Atlantic coast, or along navigable rivers that fed into it. Inland, there were great natural resources, good land for farming, forests enough to provide shelter for millions, mineral wealth beyond imagination. But those resources were largely untapped. In fact, the entire region west of the Mississippi River had a population less than that of today's Richmond, Virginia. The railroad would change all of that, as tracks were laid west from the Atlantic, new towns sprang up. Industry and commerce developed. Agricultural production increased. Mountains, rivers, distance. These were no longer insurmountable barriers to trade and travel. Railroads conquered them all and, in the process, helped transform the United States from an agrarian society into a mighty industrial giant that spanned an entire continent. 
For the Association of American Railroads, this is Tom White in Washington. Down at the And we're back with the Let's Talk Train show for Saturday, January 25th, 2016. We're talking with Scott Lotus, Executive Director for the Center for Railroad Photography and Art. And before we took our last break, we were talking about what individual photographers can do in preserving and archiving their photographs and slides. Let's talk now a little bit about what the center does in preserving and recording and archiving the equipment they receive. So could you take us a little bit through the process of um, what the center does? And in the first instance, what I'm looking at is a center the center receives a collection that is very well documented. And then take us through in a second instance where there is virtually no information to go by except dates and maybe some very basic information on the photos and or slides. Oh, that's a great question, Bob. And again, this is Scott Lotus at the Center for Road Photography and Art here in Madison, Wisconsin. And I'm here with uh, Jordan Radke, our archive manager, who will be answering most of this uh, for us, I think. Uh, but I do just want to take a minute again and, and mention our website. It's railphoto-art.org, R-A-I-L-P-H-O-T-O-A-R-T.org. Uh, check us out there, and if you want to send us an email address, an email uh, with your name and address and let us know that you heard about us uh, on Let's Talk Trains, we'll be happy to send you a free issue of our magazine, uh, Railroad Heritage. Uh, but, Bob, to get back to your question about what we do when we receive a new collection, uh, we've received several recently, and I think Jordan could take us through both of those scenarios, first with a well-documented collection, and then one where the documentation or, and organization might be a little bit lacking. So I'll turn it over to Jordan, our archives manager. Sure. And kind of continuing before the break, um, we were talking about preservation and kind of how um, someone can set up their, their uh, photography collection for um, repositories um, in, the, in the future. And a great example of one of those kind of collections um, is currently our J. Parker Lamb collection, which is um, J. Parker Lamb is still alive, and he's contacted us, and he's um, written a deed of gift to allow us to have his collection of photographs. And the nice thing about this is that uh, he's still very much available for us to get in contact with via phone or email. So we kind of are, are kind of um, being able to converse with him on a regular basis to set up any information that he needs or any uh, demands um, or uh, wants. And he can uh, contact us or we can contact him if we have a specific question. But typically he will send us batches of photographs, typically in one or 200 at a time. And from there he gives us scans, he gives us the physical negatives, and he also gives us captions to go along with each one. And once they arrive here at the center, um, I'm able to process them and attach that information very easily, easily uh, to the uh, photographs. And if I have a 
questions, I can easily contact him. He can get back to me. So it's one of those things where if you do have a photo collection, instead of just kind of writing that um, into your will right away, you can get in contact with a lot of repositories that you're thinking of possibly donating these to. And most places will probably love to work with you. Um, and so moving on from that, though, another instance is um, with our John F. Bjorklund collection, uh, a lot of the slides that he had, he, he was able to write down quite a bit of, quite a bit of information, um, including date, uh, location, and even the railroad name and um, engine numbers. But for a lot of stuff, we weren't able to get too much. Um, so we've been recently putting a lot of albums online, and we, like Scott mentioned before, we live in a world where uh, if, if if we need some answers or some questions uh, to be answered, we can throw some photos online, kind of ask our small fan base and community to take a look, and a lot of times they're the experts on some of these smaller railroads, and they can give us as detailed of information as possible, and then we can then add that and update that into our uh, personal records. All right. Sounds like you've got uh, quite a job ahead of you there with the J. Parker Lamb collection, and probably even more of a, jo of a job with uh, some of the collections that you received that aren't quite as detailed. Exactly, but things are looking great right now, and <laughs> we continue to process them and get them online so all of our users can see them. Well, I, I, I don't know him personally, but I know of J. Parker Lamb. And he has amassed quite a collection of railroad uh, photographs. And as you said, very fortunately, they are very well documented. And I was very happy to see the, uh, the center receive his collection. Well, we couldn't be happier with that. It, it's a, you know, a great confidence boost for us, to some, for a photographer of his stature to entrust us with his life's work as a photographer. Uh, and it's really an ideal situation where we're able to work with him directly uh, and sort of in this step-by-step -step process so that we can get each group of photographs uh, and do all of our processing work here in terms of, of rehousing and getting everything into a consistent uh, numbering and organizational scheme and then bring in all of the caption information uh, that he's so generously providing along with scans, which he's doing. So that's already done for us as well. Uh, so that's really the, the ideal situation, uh, and it's, it's great to be able to do that. Uh, and Jordan's really doing a fantastic job in, in managing the collection as it comes in and, and getting selections onto our website so people can see it, and, and hopefully uh, so that other publishers and, and groups can use it in the future. Now, you, you've mentioned a couple of things as we've been talking throughout the show about the availability of your collection. You've mentioned public displays, and you've mentioned the Internet, which sort of leads to the question of just exactly how accessible is your, is your collection? Um, and not so much how, well, yes, how accessible is it, number one, and number two, how much of it is accessible uh, by, via those two, um, those two means? And sure, do you no, use any other means to make your collections accessible? No, those are, those are very good questions. And I, I should also add that we, uh, I mentioned Lake Forest College before in, in being the co-sponsor of our conference and the host of it. We also partner with the Archives and Special Collections of their library. 
they're an archival partner for us and have been for most of the center's history going back to about 2000 or so. Um, they store some of our materials there. We store some of them here in Madison. And they also have uh, one or two interns, a graduate student interns uh, at a time working on our collections to do processing work there as well. So it's a, it's a great opportunity for us to be able to leverage their experience and their capacity to increase our own um, capacities to process and archive photographs. In terms of making them accessible, um, the physical materials are generally uh, always available um, on an appointment basis. Uh, anything that's held in Madison, you just need to, to get in touch with us uh, you know, here at the office, Jordan or myself, or for anything that's held in Lake Forest, you know, again, get in touch with us and we can put you in touch with the, the staff at Lake Forest College. They're generally very helpful there and, and able to set up appointments if needed. Uh, but of course, we live in a digital age, um, and so rather than forcing people to come to us, we're trying to get as much of our material online as we can. Um, and we use a few different tools of doing that. Uh, we actually are, are using Flickr to, to host a lot of our images, and by doing that, we can share them on Flickr, but then we can also feed them into our own website where we have a little bit more control over the look and the display. Uh, that's the uh, railphoto-art.org site. Uh, so we've been processing collections and putting up selections. Now, we're not trying to put every single photograph in our collections online, but we are trying to put representative samples uh, of every collection online uh, to really try to hit the highlights, uh, show the strengths of the collection, and get the, the best photographs out there where people can find them and see them and use them. We make our work available to other nonprofits, typically on a no-fee basis. We'd just be looking for a credit line if another nonprofit organization wanted to use any of our images. Uh, otherwise, we typically uh, just work with the publisher of a, you know, a for-profit publication at the, whatever the going publication rate is for them. Um, you know, we're, accept we're archiving this material to keep it available and make it accessible, and that's a big part of the center's mission statement. Our mission is to preserve and present significant images of railroading. And so to us, preservation work is just half of it. It's not really doing anyone any good if these materials just sit in boxes where no one can get to them, no matter how well archived they are. So getting materials online where people can use them and making them accessible and available, and also putting together our own exhibitions and our own publications to sort of push more of these photographs uh, out into the world, uh, those are all just absolutely paramount to what we do here. So person comes to you and says, I have a couple thousand slides, and I have maybe about seven or 8,000 photographs that I can no longer maintain, and I would like to donate them to you. What is the criteria you look at for accepting a donation? Well, so, you know, this is something that we've spent a lot of time thinking about because there are so many photographs out there. It's a, a wonderful problem to have. Uh, but because we feel very strongly about preserving and presenting, we do want to be careful here that we don't take on more than, than we're really able to, to manage and to make available. Uh, so we've established a Collections and Acquisitions Committee on our Board of Directors. Uh, they meet at least quarterly to review uh, anything that comes in. So if someone approaches us wanting to make a donation of their materials, we would typically ask them to provide just a brief description of the collection in terms of its scope and content, and also to provide a few sample images. Uh, and there's more details about all of this on our website, uh, but I can go through a few of the, the highlights here. Um, the things we'd be looking to find out would be the approximate total number of photographs in the collection, 
and how much physical space they occupy, uh, the format of the materials, whether they're slides, negatives, or prints, uh, the range of the years depicted, geographic regions covered, railroads, any distinguishing factors, you know, special focuses of the collection, uh, and any details about how the collection is currently housed, organized, and documented, and then also a few sample images. Um, so that would be the, the material that our committee would then use to, to make their review process. Uh, and in terms of what we're looking to accept, you know, we really feel strongly about trying to create a representative archive. And when I say that, we want an archive that is representative for all eras, all subject matter, all forms of photography. Um, it's not, I don't think it's going to be feasible to, to be comprehensive in every single area. Uh, so we may not make it a goal to get a roster photograph of every locomotive within a certain class. I think there are some groups that do that. Uh, so that's, that we feel like that's covered elsewhere. For us, it's really trying to create um, a representative archive that, that shows the, the full breadth of, of railroads in the U.S. and also throughout the world. Um, eras dating back to the beginnings of railroads and photography up to the present, wide geographic coverage, and a wide stylistic coverage of different formats. So it's looking at what we already have and what we already have covered and then what we would really need to help um, fully round out our own collections and archives. Uh, and every collection is going to be different. You know, we do try to take on as much as we feel like we can. And in those cases where we can't take something on, uh, we really try to work with the photographer or the donor to find another venue that would be a, a, a potentially a better fit. So again, it's you know there we do have some criteria, but none of this uh, is cast in stone. It's uh, you know each situation is different, and we really try to t treat it as such. How would you handle a collection that has some? slides in it that are already copyrighted that the owner purchased? And that's a very good question because that does come up. So, you know, one of the things that we're going to ask for in a donation of any photography collection, we're going to ask the donor to sign over a deed of gift form. And that deed of gift form transfers all rights uh, to the photographs from the donor to us, which would include copyright. Now, in the case of a photographer or a photographer's heirs, they're certainly in the position to be able to transfer their own copyright or the copyright they've inherited. Uh, but in the case of, of having purchased slides or, or other photographs, typically that copyright was not transferred, and so the donor is in no position to transfer that copyright over to us. So the first thing that we'd really ask for is to make sure that, that any photographs uh, where the copyright cannot be transferred are uh, easily distinguished within the collection, hopefully separated out into their own, you know, folders or files or sleeves or whatever so that we can easily see what, ha what we have copyright to and what we don't. Um, if we're able, we can try to track down the copyright holder and see if we can obtain copyright or at least rights to use the images. Um, oftentimes, though, that depending on the age of the material, that's not the case. Um, you know, in a situation like that, you know, uh, I'm certainly not a lawyer, and, and you shouldn't take my opinion as a legal one, but at the same time, we've, we've spent a lot of time researching this, and what we typically do is really try to do our due diligence in, in tracking down who the copyright holder might be and asking them. Um, if we're not able to, to find that person, um, you know, then I think in, in that case, you know, you, you do have uh, the ability there, I think, to, you know, make a good faith usage of that material. If you're questioned about it, hopefully you'll be able to work it out with the copyright holder if they do come forth. But if you've made your a, a good due diligence effort to find that copyright holder and you can't, 
uh, I think you do typically have the ability to go ahead and, and use those photographs. Um, but again, especially for older material, um, for more current material, sometimes you just simply aren't able to use it. So again, we, we do prefer to have original photographs donated to us uh, where the copyright can be transferred. Obviously, that's not always the case. And again, it's, it comes down to this as, as being um, uh, not uh, a science so much as it is an art, um, even of, of how to take on these collections as they come in. So I've decided I want to just donate my collection <clears throat> to the center. Or a person has decided they want to donate. How do they go about contacting you? I mean, typically most things come in uh, by email or phone. So all of our contact information is on our website. Uh, info at railphoto-art.org is our main email address. Um, that's the best place to start with uh, just a brief uh, inquiry about making a donation of a collection, and then we can direct you to our guidelines of, of what that um, you know what that application or or uh, inquiry uh, letter should look like with all the information that we're looking to receive, uh, and take it from there. And of course, you know, we're always available by phone as well to to talk through these things. Sometimes that's a lot easier. But eventually, we would like to get uh, you know in writing what the the at least the minimal criteria of the collection would look like. All right, and with that, we have to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about digital preservation. And we'll be right back. Now available, 3D Train Stuff's new Donner Pass route, the High Sierra Crossing for Microsoft Train Simulator. This new add-on features a 90-mile segment of Southern Pacific's scenic overland route, which runs over the High Sierra Mountains between Colfax, California, and Truckee, California. And it's set back in the 1950s at the height of the steam and diesel transition period. Yes, now you can step back in time and learn firsthand what it took to get a heavy fruit block train over the hill from the engineer's seat of a big AC cab forward mallet. Or pull helper service duty with one of SB's famous 280 consolidations. Or maybe you prefer running an express mail train on a very tight schedule with some SP Black Widow Funnets. Yes, it's a blast from the past. To learn more about this exciting new product, please visit our website at www.3dtrainstuff.com or call us at 1-760-728-1787. That's 760-728-1787. 3D Train Stuff. It's more than just trains. Trainparty.com, the one-stop shopping center for all things trains and parties for kids of all ages. Trainparty.com is a complete resource for the train-themed party supplies, favors, toys, and gifts. Trainparty.com has over 700 railroad-related party items to choose from. Themes such as Amtrak Train, Little Chug Party, Whistle Stop Party, and many more make it simple to select a theme and get your party rolling down the rails. Items available include party wear, games, puzzles, balloons, piñatas, invitations, locomotive engineer costumes, hats, railway series children's books, train cake pans, cupcakes, etc. Don't forget now, trainparty.com on the web for any of your train-themed party needs from start to finish. It's the only place you need to go to get what you want and need. Check it out now, trainparty.com. And we're back with the Let's Talk Train show for Saturday, January 25th, 2016. I am your host, Bob Alkire. This show has been pre-recorded. My guest today is Scott Lotus, 
the executive director of the Center for Railroad Photography and Art, along with Jordan Radke, who is the collections manager for the center. We have been previously talking about dealing with preservation of film, pictures, and slides. Well, not so much film, but uh, at least prints and slides. The next thing is now that we have come to the digital age, how has that affected the center regarding uh, collect donated collections or potential donations and preservation of images? Well, I mean, I think the biggest thing, first of all, in the transition to the digital age is in how we're able to share our materials. And we've talked a little bit about that already in terms of, of getting uh, as many of our prints, negatives, and slides online as possible. Uh, we are trying to digitize everything that comes in. We don't always digitize at high resolution. Um, it's really sort of a judgment call in terms of how big a collection is, you know, how many really good images are in that collection. And so what we'll sometimes do is just go through initially and make low-resolution scans of everything as it comes in if we're able to do that much faster. That then makes it a lot easier to look at the collection and go back and decide which images to scan at high resolution or to go ahead and post the low-resolution images uh, and let users come back and request which ones uh, get scanned at high resolution, which is the model that the Library of Congress followed uh, and it seemed to have worked well for them. Um, in terms of slides, though, we are typically able to digitize everything at high res. We actually have developed a method where we use a digital camera with a macro lens uh, to photograph uh, the slides at one-to-one -one, uh, magnification, and we're able to digitize slides very quickly that way so that we can go through and, and digitize an entire collection of 50,000 slides, and then we can use those to pull out the highlights that we then post online and, and make everything uh, available if anyone wants to you know, get a flash drive with all of the, the John Druckmann slides of the Chicago and Northwestern Railway, for example. Um, so it's really changed the game in terms of how we share things. Now, right now, we're still considering the original image, whether it's a slide, a negative, or a print. We're considering that as our archival copy. So that's what we're really uh, focusing on keeping safe in terms of archival uh, standards for housing. And one of the reasons for that um, is Number one, I mean, that's still going to be the best image to go back to if you ever need to make a new copy. Going back to the original is always going to give you the, the highest quality results. Um, and also, frankly, we, and when I say we, I mean the archival community in general, just has a much better idea of how to archive uh, physical um, photographs as opposed to digital ones. We don't right now have any native digital images in our collections. We certainly will in the future. Um, but we're not there yet, and we're really focusing our efforts on film-based photography, particularly from that steam to diesel transition era in the 1940s and 50s that resulted in so many great photographs. And we're sort of at an age where those photographs really need to be finding permanent homes uh, if they haven't already. So we're really focusing our efforts there, uh, but still keeping an eye to the future for how we might handle digital photographs as they come in. Uh, for the slides that we're digitizing right now, uh, we're just trying to keep uh, two physical copies of everything on, uh, I'm sorry, two digital copies of everything on two separate physical hard drives so that you do have a backup if one drive fails. One thing we have learned is never to trust optical media for long-term digital storage, and by that I mean things like CDs and DVDs. Uh, we've seen examples of these media failing within a few years, um, so these are certainly not good archival solutions. Magnetic hard drives uh, seem to work much better from an archival standpoint if they're stored carefully. Um, but again, we're still sort of at the, 
at the beginning stages of figuring out how to, to archive digital files. Uh, so I'll let Jordan jump in now with um, the archivist's uh, perspective on this. Right. And a quick note, um, as Scott mentioned, optical drives such as CDs and DVDs, that is definitely one medium we don't recommend using. Um, actually, the Council on Library and Information Resources have reported that uh, CDs um, actually have a life expectancy of just five to ten years before even um, any information is written on them. So, yes, CDs and DVDs are very cheap to buy, and um, if you want to quickly put something on there, um, they might be fine to use. But in the long run, you definitely want um, something such as external hard drives um, that, that you can use. Um, and I want to reiterate that backing up um, on multiple platforms is, is kind of a necessity um, and that you want to have as many backups as possible. Um, and the adage kind of the more the better is, is certainly true in that sense. So having a backup and even having a backup to the backup is always a good idea to have if, if the resources are available to you. And to keep those drives in physically separate locations. I mean, for my own personal digital photographs, I keep one hard drive at my house and one hard drive at the office here. That way, if one of them should, God forbid, happen to burn down, um, theoretically, there'd still be another copy available someplace. And we're even moving into the age of um, cloud servers being an option for a lot of things. So a lot of those selections that um, we've chosen to put online that we put on Flickr are technically on the Flickr's um, cloud server, and that's another way to back up, even though that's not initially our intent. Um, but um, there are a lot of cloud servers out there, such as Google Drive, Dropbox, and even Amazon offers um, cloud-type services. Um, so we, we've thought of even using that as, as another backup source um, as opposed to physical hard drives. I think everything Jordan speaks to here really uh, underscores the necessity for redundancy in the digital world and the fact that it really is an active process to maintain these archives. Um, you know, that's one nice thing about something like a slide is that you shoot that slide and if you, you know, if it was on Kodachrome and it's stored properly, it should last for hopefully hundreds of years. With a digital file, though, you know, you're still having to migrate that file from one format to another as obsolescence occurs or as drives wear out. Um, again, for my own personal digital photo archives, I typically migrate everything onto new external hard drives every three to five years, basically as as I fill up a drive, um, I buy the newer, bigger model and then migrate everything onto two uh, identical new drives. Uh, so it's, a, it's an ongoing process, and that's something we have to think about from an archival standpoint as well. Um, we were at a, a presentation given by Gary Johnson, the uh, president of the Chicago History Museum, who we had the pleasure of working with on our Railroaders project. And he made a point that was really salient to me in terms of, of archival work. He says that each collection that a museum takes on, you sort of have to look at it like a parent having a baby, that you know this is now your baby and this is something you're going to be responsible for um, for the rest of, of your life. Uh, he said the difference is, though, that a baby grows up and eventually can take care of itself, but these collections are always going to require your care. And so we really, we really take that seriously and take that to heart as we think about what we take on and, and how we're going to manage it. Uh, because, again, it just, you know, there's always going to be 
things that need updated to keep digital files safe, at least given our current level of technology. Maybe in a few years we will figure out a way to, to get everything onto one format that we know is going to be good for a thousand years, but we're not there right now. Yeah, and I think I'm in trouble because I got a ton of CDs with photographs on them that I need to migrate. Uh, I would get started on that as soon as you can. <laughs> yes. You you talked about using the cloud, and I guess that brings up an issue of ownership rights, especially since um, everything that's put on the cloud, it seems like it never goes away. So how do you how does how does one go about determining ownership rights? I mean, you're the the center is putting stuff on the cloud, and in in it's possible. I don't know how feasible it is, but it's certainly possible that somebody could come along and pick up a bunch of your images and claim them as their own and put them out there on the on the internet. I mean, that's what, you know, then what is what is the center left with? I mean, that's a Other than going you... after that for stealing photo, uh, going after the person in court for stealing uh, copyright stuff. So, I mean, I think that's a chance you take anytime you you share an image in any public space today. And you know, honestly, that's that's been the case for a long time. Um, you know, it's a little bit easier. Well, it's a lot easier now with digital technology. Um, but a photograph published in a book. Um, you know, if it's high quality, could be, you know, rephotographed and claimed by someone else. Um, and we face that now with with digital. Uh, one of the things that we do before putting anything online is going through and and updating all of the metadata to make sure that we're specified as the copyright holder and to add our copyright line, including our name and and website and email address so that all of our contact information is embedded into the metadata of every photograph that we put online. Um, and the cloud services we use, like Flickr, are very good about displaying all of that information. And we do set limits as to the resolution that's available for someone to come in and download. Um, now, we do have pretty generous um, settings on that because monitors have gotten so much bigger and we want our photographs to look good when someone looks at them. You know, we don't want someone to only be able to see a little tiny thumbnail. We want people to be able to enlarge photographs and see them on the full screen. Could someone come in and, and take a screenshot of that and then use it for themselves and claim it as their own? Yes, they could. Um, but I think that's, that's one of the risks we run, and we try to do our due diligence in terms of putting our copyright information on. Uh, so far, we've not at least nothing's come to our attention uh, of misuse happening, um, but that is something that we'll be vigilant for. And I think you really do yourself a service uh, by trying to promote your material as much as possible so that we, we share our material in a lot of places through Facebook, um, Twitter, Instagram now, uh, through email blasts, through our magazine, through exhibitions. Um, and by doing that, we're, you know, I think, broadening the center's brand and letting people know what we have. And, you know, hopefully we're creating our own police force in this way so that if one of our members sees one of our photographs being used someplace uh, by someone who it doesn't belong to, they would then get in touch with us and let us know about that so we could take the appropriate action. Um, and, you know, I think we, we always are going to face these trade-offs as to keeping things safe and secure versus making them available and accessible. And for us, we really feel strongly that, you know, accessibility and, and presentation are important, and so we're willing to accept some risks there, at least on the security side, uh, as long as we're doing everything we can to, to keep our materials safe. 
Okay. Um, again, with the advent of digital cameras, I've deleted a photograph off my camera. Can it be restored? Maybe would be the short answer. Um, <laughs> and, and there are a few different ways of going about this. Uh, and actually, it's funny you should mention this. I just saw a Facebook comment by one of my friends uh, this morning who had said, you know, say what you will about film, but he's never deleted an entire box of slides. Uh, that was uh, Otto Vondrak, <laughs> Red Magazine. If he happens to be listening, a shout-out to Otto there. He's doing some, some great design work for them. Um, but that is a challenge with digital uh, photography, and I think, you know, it's probably happened to all of us at some point or another. Um, I got a dog this fall, and one day I left my memory card out on the table, and I came back, and it had a big canine tooth mark in the middle of my memory card, and that card was no longer readable. Fortunately, I'd already downloaded it, but uh, lessons learned. Uh, so these things can, can certainly happen. Um, and there are a few different ways of, of trying to recover files. There are several programs you can download online, some for free, some for a fee. Uh, a lot of them will let you uh, download a free version that you can then test to see if you can recover a file. And then if you can make the recovery, then you can pay for the, the full version of the program to allow you to recover the entire card. Um, so it's always a good idea to test some of these out beforehand. You know, you can just do a Google search for photo recovery software, and believe me, lots of options are going to pop up. Uh, and so I think it's just a matter of, of trying a couple of those out with the free version and seeing what works for you. Um, you know, most camera media, if the, the, the flash card is still in good physical condition, you can often go back and recover a photograph that's been deleted. Um, I've gone through and recovered uh, files off of photographs that were two or three iterations old that had been overwritten a couple of times. So some of these things can look back pretty deeply. Um, now, if you're not able to do that, there are some people out there that are data recovery specialists. Uh, I've tried a couple of firms in California as well as in Europe. Um, that have a little bit more resources at their disposal than some of these software programs would. Um, so there are some options available. Um, obviously, the more work that's involved, the more the cost is going to be. Uh, so you know, my advice is to, to back up your files on the road, shoot with multiple memory cards. I know it's very tempting to get one really big memory card and just fill it up, uh, but you're sort of doing yourself a favor in diversifying your assets if you're able to to shoot on several different memory cards. If you're going out for a weekend trip or a week's vacation, to, to switch up and use a different card every day. That way, if you if you do have a card fail or if you do accidentally delete it, you don't lose the other uh, day's worth of shots. Um, and then also try to back up your files on the road if you can. Some of the newest digital cameras actually have capabilities to write to two memory cards simultaneously, often a compact flash card and a secure digital card. Um, so that gives you a, an in-camera backup option. And you can also take a smartphone or a tablet or a laptop computer with you and download directly to those and at least try to get your best files backed up. Um, I was uh, traveling overseas recently and took my iPad with me and used the, the connector that Apple sells to allow you to uh, upload a flashcard or a secure digital files um, onto the iPad and was then able to at least go through and back up my best photographs of that trip so that if the cards had failed, I would still have a, an extra copy. But, you know, here again, I think the, the answer is redundancy and uh, a little bit more extra effort and time involved. All right, and with that, we need to take another break, and we'll be back in a minute. Hear that? 
That's the sound of new homes being built in Windsor, Colorado. That's stores and restaurants opening. That's people punching in at a new job. And that is a freight train. A big reason why so much is happening in Weld County. I'm Weld County Commissioner Sean Conway. Over the last three years, our county has seen economic growth and job creation. I'm Jason Martinson, the Logistics Process Manager for Vestas. We're the world's leading manufacturer of wind turbines. Our four new plants in Colorado employ over 1,700 people. We built here because access to freight rail helps us move our turbines to market. When large companies like Vestas come, so do suppliers, other businesses, and more jobs. It's what economists call the ripple effect. I call it the freight rail effect. Freight Rail, delivering goods and materials to every corner of America and bringing jobs and economic growth along for the ride. Visit FreightRailWorks.org. And we're back with the Let's Talk Train show for Saturday, June 25th, 2016. I am your host, Bob Alkire. My guest today is Scott Lotus, the Executive Director of the Center for Railroad Photography and Art, and he is joined by archives manager Jordan Radke, and we are talking about photographic preser- preservation. And one area that I had had in my mind that I wanted to talk about before we got into digital was film preservation. And I was wondering if the, if the center is involved in film preservation at all, and if so, to what degree? With film, you're talking about uh, moving pictures now, movies. Is that moving right, pictures, yes. Sure. So a little bit. Um, we have received uh, some 16-millimeter and 8-millimeter films as part of larger collections. Um, and, I mean, the, the storage requirements are similar in that you want to keep them in, you know, cool, relatively dry places. Um, you know, they're, they're basically the same, the same kind of material that you would find, you know, in, in still camera film. Uh, so the storage requirements are similar. Jordan can talk a little bit more about housing and, and other concerns there. Um, and also, we're trying to do the same thing there and getting these things digitized so that we can share them. Um, you know, we're not able to digitize uh, movie film in-house as we are uh, still images, uh, so we have to use third-party vendors there, so there are some costs involved. Um, but we have been able to do that with some uh, film that came to us in the Fred Springer collection, and we do uh, look forward to sharing that in the future uh, through YouTube and Flickr and uh, some of the other uh, movie channels available to us out there. Um, Of course, there are a lot of additional requirements in terms of of just handling uh, digital video files. Uh, Anyone who's worked with those know that it's a time-consuming process to first make the conversions into formats that are, are readable and usable, and then any editing work takes up a good bit of of, um, of manpower and computer processing time. Uh, so there are just some additional factors involved. So it's not an area that we've done a lot of work yet, um, but we do have a few things in our collections already, and it certainly is something that we're open to, to doing more of in the future. And I'll ask Jordan if he has any further thoughts on, on films. Uh, yeah, I haven't done too, many, too much hands-on experience with film, but like Scott said, it is very similar um, to any other still image film, like 35 millimeter. Um, the thing is, consistency is, again, a, a key that you want to just, for preserving it, you want to make sure you just kind of keep it in the same temperature and relative humidity, um, the, the, the least amount of air as exposed to it as possible. Um, 
And I, yeah, I don't know if we have uh, too much in our collections, but um, like Scott said, we'll we'll try to get that online once once we get a handle on it. Okay, let's go and talk a little bit more about um, this is or the center for itself. I'm sure this is something that people are would like to know about. How does one go about joining the center? And do you have different classes of memberships? Oh, absolutely. And that's very easy. You can go to our website, again, which is railphoto-art.org, R-A-I-L-P-H-O-T-O hyphen A-R-T dot O-R-G. And if you click the, the tab at the top right, which is join and support us, you'll go right to a page where you can uh, sign up immediately with PayPal or you can download a form to send in. Our membership Fees right now are $50 per year, which includes four issues of our quarterly magazine, Railroad Heritage, as well as discounted admission to our events like the Conversations Conference. Um, and we, then we do have additional classifications of membership. Uh, we are lucky to have a lot of supporters who make contributions above that $50 level, and those are all spelled out on the website. Uh, and we're an organization, we're, you know, a privately funded uh, not-for-profit organization um, that receives the majority of our funding through our members and supporters. So this is really what we rely on to be able to do this photo archival work and put our exhibitions and publications together. Uh, so it really is it's crucial to what we do. Uh, we've been fortunate that we were actually able to launch an endowment uh, this spring thanks to a very generous gift from the chairman of our board, uh, Bon French, um, and we have a matching gift to go with that so that we uh, are going to be now launching an endowment campaign to, to grow that fund. And you know, we looked at this as a board and thought about what we needed for the center to have longevity, um, and we decided that an endowment was the, the right step for us to take so that we can you know, go to a photographer like Jay Parker Lamb and say, you know, look, we do have the resources in place so that we can, you know, say that we'll be able to take on your collection and keep it safe for certainly as long as we can see into the future. Um, and that will allow us to, you know, meet whatever needs we have down the road in terms of storage and preservation so that we can, you know, take on more of these collections and keep them safe. And what about monetary donations? Uh, over and above, say, basic or general membership. Can that also well, be done? Oh, absolutely. That can be done through the website, um, also through uh, the form you can download. And we certainly encourage people, if they're thinking of making a larger gift, to get in touch with us if there are specific things they'd like that gift to be targeted to. We are very receptive to that. Um, you know, we've had people make donations to help out with the conference in terms of uh, travel for our presenters. We always want to offer uh, travel expenses to the people who come present for us and for all the time and effort that goes into those. And we've also been able to offer scholarships uh, for young photographers and artists to attend the conference, and that's all funded by uh, gifts made above the minimum uh, by our members and attendees. Um, we certainly are going to be receptive to other ideas if someone would like to sponsor an issue of Railroad Heritage or even just a, sponsor a page of the magazine or make a donation specifically targeted towards archiving photo collections, one collection in particular, um, a certain exhibition. Uh, you know, we had a, a targeted campaign for the exhibition we did at the Chicago History Museum. Um, so certainly there are a lot of opportunities out there. We've spelled out some of these on our website, and uh, we have a very active development committee on our board of directors, and we're working to spell out some more opportunities that will be available for gifts in the future. 
All right. About a year ago, through Railroad Heritage and on your website, you ran a survey. Uh, what do you think it, uh, should be the core activities for for the center? And it was the results were very interesting. And what I found, and you mentioned it in the article, that uh, exhibitions and awards rated among the lowest. And yet that's probably the two things that, that can bring the public uh, awareness of the center. So how do you go about um, um, working, working on those two areas, um, considering that, the, that most of the membership doesn't feel that's terribly important? Well, I'm not sure I'd say that people don't feel it's terribly important. Um, you know, this was this was a survey that we did sort of as, as a, a run-up to thinking about launching an endowment to really take the pulse of, of our membership and our audience and our core constituency to, to see what people's thoughts were about the center. Um, overall, we rated very highly, I think uh, about a 4.7 on a scale of 5. Uh, we had a great response rate to the survey. And one of the things that we did ask for was for people to go through and, and rank our five core activities, that being awards, exhibitions, collections, publications, and conferences. Uh, and just to go through and rank those on a one to five scale of five being the highest priority, I'm sorry, one being the highest priority, five being the lowest priority. Um, and so collections did by far and away come out as the number one priority among our membership. And I mean, I think that also makes sense just if you're looking at you know, potential biases within a survey. We largely serve a community of photographers and a lot are thinking very carefully um, about where their materials are going to go. Uh, and so I think that's just sort of very at the forefront of, of people's minds, uh, at least within our group. So I think that it sort of makes sense that collections would come out number one. We had a, a sense of that already. We've already expanded our work there. And, and thanks to that survey, we've, we've continued to expand our work there. Uh, but a comment that we received uh, through a lot of these surveys written in the margins or on emails as they came in was that it was very difficult to pick a favorite and very difficult to rank and that all five of them were important. So, I mean, I think it's, it's a case of, of most people acknowledging that all the work we do is important, uh, certainly the way I feel about it. Uh, it's just a matter of given limited resources where you're going to, you know, direct your, your highest priorities. Um, but at the same time, we also really recognize the importance of doing things like exhibitions and awards as a way to engage more of the general public and as ways to fulfill that presentation part of our mission statement. Um, and if you look at the Chicago exhibition, for example, we were very successful in fundraising for that, both independently and in conjunction with the Chicago History Museum. Uh, as an exhibition where we were able to engage some new donors, some new audiences, uh, people who might not be photographers themselves, but who have a great interest, you know, in photography and art and in railroad history. Um, so I think we'll, you know, continue to do that in the future. If we think we have a really good uh, project that's an exhibition or an award, you know, maybe that the funding for that may not necessarily come from within our membership. We may look outside our normal circles for that. Um, but it's all part of of what's core to the center's activities. You know, we're trying to to get as many photographs as we can and use them to tell the biggest stories that we can uh, and whatever opportunities we find for that, we'll, we'll try to figure out the best way to, to make it happen. Okay. It's uh, getting very windy out here up in the uh, Pacific Northwest. 
and that usually means power failure for my area. So I'm going to wrap this up real quickly and just ask you, where do you see this, uh, the center going, say, in the next five to ten years? Oh, that's a great question to end on, Bob. Um, certainly our collections efforts are going to continue to expand. Um, our Collections and Acquisitions Committee has identified you know, several uh, photographers' work that we'd like to add to, to what we already have. Um, obviously, this all takes resources to, to do the processing and the archival storage. Um, so we're going to be looking to grow our collections, add to our endowment so that we'll be able to have the funds in place to keep these things safe. Um, we'll continue to be doing more exhibitions, um, hopefully if something else on the scale of that Chicago exhibition within the next couple of years. And we're also looking at expanding our publications program. Uh, Railroad Heritage will continue as a quarterly. It's up to 48 pages now. We've been steadily growing that. We'll hope to continue to do that as, as we're able to add more pages there. Uh, we've also published a couple of books in the past. Um, we did a, a catalog on Ted Rose's photography and art. We did an extended catalog, a hardcover book on the Railroaders exhibition. It's a beautiful book. If you don't have it, I'd certainly encourage you to come to our website and buy a copy. We also did a softcover book on the, public, on the collections that we had, uh, their highlights, uh, about a year ago. We've added more collections since then, so we hope to do a follow-up book to that. And we're working on a couple of other book ideas as well. So we've got several different irons in the fire. Uh, we're lucky to, to have a, a very dedicated group of people working on them. So I think it's a really exciting time in the center's um, history and growth. And we look forward to a very bright future. All right. Well, that sounds wonderful. And I really thank you for joining us, Scott, and also you too, Jordan. It's been a pleasure. Uh, it's been most informative and very interesting. As I say, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, Bob, thank you so much for the opportunity to come on the show, and, and thanks to all the listeners out there for tuning in. And if you have any questions about any of the work we do, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us. We'd love to, talk, to hear from you. Thanks again, Bob. All right. And that wraps up the show for today. This is the Let's Talk Train show for Saturday, June 25th, 2016. Just as a reminder, the show has been pre-recorded, so we have not been taking any calls. I am your host, Bob Alkire. My thanks to Jordan Radke and to Scott Lotus from the Center for Railroad Photography and Art. And I'll see you next month.